2: Hey everybody, I am away on a short vacation, so there isn't really an intro at the top of this week's show, but because holidays are here. Some quick final gift suggestions from all of us here at the Savage Lovecast. Give the gift of the Savage Lovecast. Go to SavageLovecast.com, click on gift, and send the Magnum Edition of the Savage Lovecast to someone on your list who listens to the Micro Edition. Everyone on your list already subscribers to the Magnum Edition? You can send them a GGG or Fuck First mug by going to SavageLovecast.com and clicking on shop itmfa.org. Everybody on your list wants to see that motherfucker impeached already, go to itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com and get them an ITMFA t-shirt, hat, mug, lapel pin, hoodie, bumper sticker at itmfa.org. And it really works. Happened to me the other day. I was wearing my ITMFA t-shirt at the gym. The woman on the treadmill next to me asked me what ITMFA stood for, and I told her, and now we are best friends. And finally, a unique gift idea. Hopefully everyone on your list is happy about the Democrats retaking the House, the blue wave, the blue tsunami, the blue quicksand, the biggest victory in a midterm election for Democrats in the House for 40 years. Well, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, they built that victory and they went into debt to do it, which is not unusual. Consider giving the gift of helping to retire the DCCC's debt from the 2018 midterm elections, go to dccc.org, click on Donate Now, and you can send a lovely card letting someone on your list know that you made a donation toward retiring that debt in their name at dccc.org. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to and gift at SavageLovecast.com, Dr. James Cantor joins us to talk about robot or real doll brothels, which are coming soon to a metropolis near you.
3: Hey, Dan and the
4: crew, white female from Colorado, calling with a question for your black listeners. I just watched the film Black Landsmen with my white parents. I would consider it a triumph that they were even open to watching that movie because that is not their jam. They don't dip their toe into conversations or topics that are, I would even go so far as to say thought-provoking, controversial. Anything that's out of their norm, they're not going there. And so I was, I was happy with the fact that they were even open to watching it. At one point, I mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. And my mom gave the typical white privilege, head up your ass answer, which is, what about my life? Doesn't my life matter? Or my life matters just as much as anybody else's life. And that's bullshit. I mean, everyone's life matters. Yes, of course. Duh but that's not the point of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I did my best to explain that to her in a proactive way that wasn't just getting in a fight because we've had enough of that in our relationship. And I'm practicing finding productive ways to connect on these topics. So I wanted to ask you, what would you recommend when I hear that? from a family member who I love dearly and who I don't want to fight with. You know, I don't want to meet fire with fire. I'd like to have it be productive and maybe, maybe even make a difference. So what would you recommend to me, a white woman speaking with her white parents about the topic of the black lives matter movement?
2: There was a shooting at a bar outside of Chicago uh, a week or two ago, a few weeks ago. And A security guard who was on duty, an armed security guard, a good guy with a gun, the NRA's prescription, right? We need armed security guards everywhere to stop the bad guys with guns who have guns because it's so easy to get guns. So We need more people out there with guns because the NRA and the gun lobby is a gun sales racket. Anyway, there was a good guy with a gun, an armed security guard, and there was an assailant who was going to shoot up a bar outside of Chicago. And the armed security guard subdued the shooter, had him on the ground, armed security guard wearing a uniform with a hat, with an officer hat that said security on it. And the Midlothian Police Department rolls up and a cop pulls out a gun and shoots and kills the armed security guard, who was an African-American, who had prevented other people from being murdered at the moment. And according to witnesses who were at the bar, as the cops pulled up, other patrons, people on the street, were screaming security, security, identifying the security guard as not the perp as not the bad guy with a gun. The cop shot him anyway. And Jamel Roberson, 26 years old is dead. And the reason of course that that happened is because that cop most likely saw nothing but race. Didn't see a uniform. Didn't see security badge. Didn't see a hat with the fucking word security written on it. He saw a black guy in a bar outside of Chicago With a gun, doing his job, a gun he had a legal license to carry, and he executed him. Because that cop grew up in a culture that devalues black lives, that says black lives don't matter. For centuries, African Americans were enslaved and white people told themselves and each other lies for centuries to justify slavery and to justify Jim Crow. And that lie, the central lie was black people matter less, if at all. And so Black Lives Matter is pushing back against a culture that says that, that says black lives don't matter. It's a response to that. Gay experience black experience, they're not identical. They're not the same. Anytime you compare them, some people jump up to say that. I get it. Not that there is an overlap. There are gay black people out there who get it from both barrels, the anti-gay oppression, anti-black oppression. But you hear from straight people around gay pride. Well, you don't see straight pride, do you? Yeah, you also don't see world religions that are centuries and millennia old telling straight people that they are sick and sinful and should be ashamed of themselves. You don't see families rejecting their straight children for being straight and shaming them for being straight and telling them there's something wrong with them for being straight. What gay pride says is I take pride in this thing that I've been told, instructed to feel ashamed of and shamed about. And I know there's nothing shameful about it. In fact, I am proud of it. I'm proud of myself. Gay people aren't proud of the fact that, you know, I'm not proud I can get a dick into my mouth. Any idiot can get a dick in his mouth. A limber person can get their own dick in their own mouth. What I'm proud of is that I'm out and gay and healthy and whole, and I could see through the lies that I was told about myself. That's what gay pride's about. Not that gay people are better than straight people. That we were told to be ashamed of ourselves, and we are not. We have nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, the opposite. That's what Black Lives Matter is about. Anybody should be able to understand that. Anybody who can wrap their heads around why there's a gay pride parade and not a straight pride parade should be able to wrap their heads around why there's a Black Lives Matter movement and not a White Lives Matter movement. Because white lives have never been devalued. Because white lives have always mattered and still matter in a way that black people's lives do not. That's what I have to say on the subject. You had asked my African-American listeners to please weigh in. And I want to second that if there are African-Americans out there who might have some way of addressing this issue with clueless white people like the caller's parents, and you have some advice or perspective if there's something that you've said that worked, that opened some idiots eyes that got through their thick fucking cracker ass skulls. Give us a call 206-302-2064 and share.
5: Hello, Dan. I'm a 50-year-old hetero male living in Colorado. I've been married 18 years to my wife. Our sex life in the beginning was fun, adventurous, and exciting, and sex quickly became routine and less frequent to about six to eight times a year. It got to the point where I was just thankful that we were having sex at all. We went to a couples therapist where I brought up the lack of intimacy, and the therapist suggested we incorporate toys into our sex life. After a few months, sex was still very infrequent. I decided to stop being the person who initiated sex. This resulted in our not having sex for two years. My wife then told me she wanted to have an open marriage to exclusively have sex with other people, including the female gender. She said I was welcome to seek out my own hookups and also encouraged me to seek professional sex workers if required. Our arrangement would be on a don't ask, don't tell basis. She'd do her thing discreetly on the side, and I'd do mine. The overall message was she no longer wanted to have sex with me. I'm a fairly attractive person. I always try to be good, giving, and game, though now I am starting to question that. I asked her what was her issue, was it size, technique, or even my gender. My wife could not or would not say specifically what my shortfalls were or what I could do to make things better only that she was unsatisfied and sex with me caused her distress. I told her that I would not remain in a marriage without intimacy. However, I was willing to try an open marriage for a limited time of one year if it would help reignite our sex life together. If after the year there was no measurable improvement, I would end our marriage. I suggested we start out slow with intimacy and only kiss and cuddle until she became more comfortable with doing more. One evening after an enjoyable night out together, I suggested we make out with no sexual expectations. She reacted as if I invited her to eat dog shit. She reluctantly complied, but I couldn't enjoy myself because of her horrible initial reaction. I never asked or tried to kiss her romantically again. It has now been six months since our open marriage. I'm seeing my own therapist per my wife's request. She has stopped seeing her own therapist, refused to see a couple's therapist, and nothing has changed or improved between us. I don't take divorce lightly. We have two teenage kids, but I will not spend the rest of my life with someone who I cannot be intimate with. Dan, how do you read my situation? You talk about the price of admission of being in a relationship, but not being intimate with my wife is a deal-breaker for me. I feel I am being extremely generous giving her a hall pass. I have a pass, too, but I only want to be with my wife. Am I being unreasonable?
2: I don't think you're being unreasonable. You're just being dense. It's time to read the writing on the Times Square ticker. She doesn't want to fuck you. You don't want to be married to someone who doesn't want to fuck you. So you need to end this marriage. I'm sorry to be just blunt about it, but your wife has told you in pretty scalding terms that she isn't interested in being intimate with you in the way that you require intimacy in your marriage. And so you're going to have to end this relationship. You are not willing, or so you say, to have a companionate marriage where you are partners and you live together and you parent together and you have separate romantic and sexual wives, interests, pursuits, other partners. That is not something that you're willing to do or settle for. Now you were hoping, and and I don't think this was a, a, a bad strategy on your part, you were hoping that if she got out there and got to fuck some other people, she might be interested in fucking you again. And that does happen. There's a lot of research that shows that a woman's interest in a committed partner falls off sooner and more sharply than a male's interest in a female partner. That tells us something about female sexuality that I don't think many people are comfortable confronting. It is often the case that a woman who is bored, a woman who has no sexual interest, who has zero libido, will go see a sex therapist, go see a researcher, go see a doctor, work on it, work on it, work on it, try, 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 nothing works, her libido is dead, her marriage ends, and then suddenly she wants to fuck people again. Seems to me that it's possible to not end the marriage, allow for some fucking of other people, and maybe revive the intimacy in the marriage, in the primary relationship. And that often happens. You hear from people, anecdotally, who've opened their relationships, and not only, only did they enjoy the sex with others but suddenly they were enjoying sex with each other again and it was passionate again hasn't been the case with your wife it isn't that she was bored and she needed some freedom and autonomy and outside sexual affirmation to feel attractive and also then attracted to you again she just doesn't want to fuck you she is not attracted to you she doesn't want to be intimate with you in any way And uh, I believe you when you say you're attractive. It doesn't mean that you're uh, an ogre. It doesn't mean that you are repulsive. But you do repulse her. She finds you repulsive. That doesn't mean you are repulsive. There are people out there who don't, who won't find you repulsive. People out there who would want to be intimate with you. Go fuck some of them. Stop trying to get water out of a dry fucking well. And if you meant what you said, you don't want to be married to somebody that you do not have sexual or romantic intimacy with, then you don't want to be married to your wife. Not anymore.
1: Uh, yes, I'm a 34 year old gay male. Uh, been out for years now. Uh, the question, though, is not about me. It's actually about my 15 year old nephew. My 15 year old nephew recently came out as bi, and he's uh, he actually told me before he told his parents and and telling his mom exactly. It was a bit of a surprise, kind of a shock. Because whereas I was quite obvious, he was not quite obvious. And I came as a shock to kind of me, too, and also her. So there's that whole aspect of it. Uh, I'm trying to guide them both through the process, though, of uh, him, just trying to sort everything out that's going on with him, but also kind of trying to provide some advice to my sister, uh, i.e., the mother, as well. And I'm kind of stuck in the middle as to what exactly, what I need to do, because well, simply put, when I came out, it was a bit of a different time from the way it is now. I came out when I was 22. He's basically come out as bi at 15. And it's a little bit different of a culture now. And so I'm trying to figure out exactly what to do with him and what to do with her as well. So it, the changing culture, for, especially for those, uh, for lack of better words, older gays, even though I'm 34, I'm not really that much older than, than my nephew, I'm trying to get a sense of exactly how to navigate the paths that uh, are associated with this. If you have any advice, it'd be greatly appreciated.
2: Be there for him. It's really not that hard. Offer him your love and your support. Tell him you're always there. Make sure he has your phone number. Make sure he has your email address. If there's anything he needs to ask you about, any advice that he wants. If he has questions about someone who's interested in him, if he has questions about at 15 dating and romance, be there. Answer those questions. It's really not that hard. I mean, you can refer him to Glisten, you can refer him to the Trevor Project, the It Gets Better Project. There's a lot out there online for young queer people. Resources that weren't available to you, old fart, and me, much older fart, when we were 15 years old and finding our way. Another thing we didn't have at 15, when we were finding our way, loving and supportive family. Young straight people, when they have their first relationships, when they begin to date, when they get their hearts broken the first time, they live at home with mom and dad and sometimes even with siblings who are there to offer support, comfort, advice. My sister, when she was 15 years old and dating some boy who told her that if she really loved him, she wouldn't make him wear a condom, was able to ask my mother about that. I think she was actually 17 years old when that came up. And my mother told her that that was bullshit and she should break up with the guy. You may need to be that person in his life. Some guy or some girl may tell him this is what love is. This is how people who are in love have sex or treat each other. And it could be bullshit. And he needs, because he doesn't have romance and sex bullshit detectors that are fully functional yet. He may need to bounce that off you. And you're at a safe remove. You're the uncle. You don't live with him. He doesn't have to look you in the eye every day. In fact, he can communicate with you without having to look you in the eye at all by emailing or texting with you. And so let him know that you're there. You're there to help him with any questions, any issues. And then do the download about safety. Do the download about porn. I'm sure if he's 15 years old and bi – And possibly gay. I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to say it, but there I said it. I came out as bi first before coming out as gay. Doesn't mean he's not bi. Doesn't mean that everybody who says they're bi is on their way to gay if they're dudes. And more and more young bi people are coming out who are actually bi and will be bi all their lives. And it's less of a transitional stage or step or identity than it used to be. But – He's going to be having sex with guys. He's probably watched a lot of gay porn. They're not covering porn in his sex ed classes. They're certainly, even if they acknowledge porn in his sex ed classes, not covering gay porn. You don't want him to go into his first same-sex encounters or relationships with porn-pickled expectations. So tell him about gay sex in an appropriate way. Have a conversation, sort of a sex ed conversation about what he should expect and then let him ask you questions and then answer them. But love and support is what he really needs. And that's not a resource that you can direct him to. That is something that you and your sister can and should provide him with. That's what he asked you for when he came out to you.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm a cis queer woman from Los Angeles. I wanted to ask a question or ask you to talk a bit about negotiating the difference between female orgasm, vagina-bodied people, and non-vagina-bodied people and their orgasm in a sexual context. I recently had sex with someone, uh, with a trans woman, who didn't make me come. And I I initially ex- expected them to help me come after they did. And they were totally disinterested and like, got up to go to the bathroom as I was jacking off. And I was like weird and made a joke about it and they kind of just like eventually they said like oh just give up and i was like what what do you like okay and like got a little bit mad um and told them like that it was weird but like it's fine because it's the first time we're having sex and it's really late okay whatever but then this person ended up ghosting me which is weird cuz i try not to engage in uh like one night stands i guess or like i'm not that i'm like not a slut or something or Whatever. I, I like to have sex with people I don't necessarily know, but I don't necessarily, like, don't communicate with them. I'm pretty used to communicating with my sexual partner. So, basically, I encountered this person who is a queer person. They're a trans woman who seems to have a lot of internalized misogyny. They um, didn't respect my boundary. Like, they didn't make me come. Um, and I don't know how to tell them. I mean, I do. I, I told them it's not cool. To do that, but I guess I guess this person, me and this person, I don't really care at this point. They're obviously a shitty person, but I think it would be interesting to hear your perspective on how to negotiate um, physical differences in people and what kind of responsibilities should be put on people who are not vagina-bodied to think about, like, um, orgasm taking a longer time.
2: I think you are overthinking this. This isn't about the difference between vagina body people and non-vagina body people. I am a non-vagina bodied person. I have had sex with people. I've had sex with people where I came first. I didn't then leave the room. I didn't then knock their own dicks out of their own hands and tell them to give up. I soldiered on until I fulfilled my responsibility to them as a sex partner and ensured that they experienced as much pleasure as I experienced if they wanted to experience pleasure in that moment. Not everybody who has sex is invested in every sexual encounter in climaxing themselves. That is something a partner can tell you. I don't want to get off. I want to get you off. And that can be legitimate. You have to roll with that. But... What this person that you went to bed with, it's not a, a vagina body, non-vagina body issue. This is just an asshole issue. You went to bed with a selfish motherfucking piece of shit asshole who happens to be queer and trans and terrible. And displaying some cliche male piggish behavior. Now women can behave in malish piggishness ways. Now women can behave in ways that are Traditionally or stereotypically male, and men can behave in ways that are stereotypically or traditionally female or feminine. But, you know, a penis having person getting their orgasm and then wandering out of the room and not being invested in their partner's pleasure, you hear that from straight women a lot about straight men. Just saying. That said, I have experienced that myself at the hands of. Gay men, and I've heard from some straight men, many, 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 many fewer, who've experienced the same from straight women. I think that, however, happens very, very rarely. You wonder what to do about this? Nothing. You should thank your lucky stars that this piece of shit ghosted on you, that they removed themselves from your life. The fact that this non-vagina-bodied person removed their non-vagina-bodied self from your life is a favor that non-vagina-bodied person did you. And yeah, what an asshole. Glad you spoke up for yourself in the moment. They outed themselves in that moment as not just queer and trans, but piece of shit you never wanted to fuck ever again in your entire life. And congratulations, Yahtzee. You never have to fuck that piece of shit ever again in your whole fucking life.
3: Hi, Dan. This is early 20s female pansexual. I recently met a guy. We immediately hit it off and we're really attracted to each other. He's 39, he's a little bit older, but I don't really mind to always date people. So um, I mentioned him to my very good friend and also housemate, I live with her as well. And we found out that she actually hooked up with him about five or six years ago. She said he was really sweet, he was a great lover. And she said, you know, go for it, you can you can see him, like, we can be Eskimo sisters, and I kind of played it off, like, oh, he's, you know, too old for me, I'm not going to go for it, but we kept messaging and flirting a lot, and I saw him last night, and we fucked, and it was amazing, and he's great, he's super sweet. And it was very clear we wanted to see each other again. But I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should tell my very close friend and housemate. I don't want it to get weird. And I don't know if and when I should tell him that uh, he has previously hooked up with my good friend and housemate. So I don't know what to do. I really want to keep seeing him. But I don't know, should I just compartmentalize these two relationships? I'm not sure.
2: Straight people are so weird. The way you guys weird out about, oh, you're fucking somebody that somebody you know fucked once upon a time five fucking years ago. We don't have the luxury of weirding out about that kind of crap in gay land because there are fewer of us. Many, many, many fewer of us. So the odds that my boyfriend fucked your boyfriend or my boyfriend fucked my best friend once upon a time or... Are really high just from the dating and sex churn. So, this is a non issue in Gayland. You go to the guy and say, Oh, here's a funny thing. You know, five years ago, you fucked my roommate and she thought you were a great guy. You know, I mentioned it, mentioned you, she figured out who it was and she vouched for you. So, I'm happy to keep dating and seeing you. People you fucked five years ago and it ended aren't mad at you. That's a really good sign. Come on over, eat my pussy. How hard is that? What are you afraid of? What's what's the reaction going to be on his part? Is he going to be weirded out? Does he only want to stick his dick in people who don't know anybody else he's ever stuck his dick in ever in his life? Well, in straight land, you might have that luxury, particularly if you move around the country a lot. You have that luxury of never fucking anybody who knows anybody else you've ever fucked. In gay land, you don't have that luxury. And so we deal with this all the time. It's a non-issue. So, tell him. Tell him. You don't have to compartmentalize. You don't have to keep these two human beings in separate silos. You don't have to end up ha- having some sort of French farce in your apartment where you're trying to keep them away from each other and they're running in one room and out the other. No, 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 no. Just go fucking tell him. Ha, ha, small world. Guess what? You fucked my roommate. She thought you were a good guy. I'd like to keep fucking you. You win. No problem. No problem at all. There's not a problem here.
7: Hey, Dan, Um, I am a 30 something married gay male and I've been with my husband for about 10 years. We have uh, a great relationship and a wonderful sex life. Um, But I did have a question for you. About a year and a half ago, um, we'd been managing a Tumblr and just reblogging things that we found interesting, and we both uh, realized and were able to talk about the fact that we liked some of the porn that was on there. And so we had a lot of really good discussions and eventually started um, doing a, uh, keeping up a porn blog of things that we found sexy and entertaining, and uh, had a bunch of really good discussions about um, our needs, our wants, um, our desires, and things like that. And one of the things that we had always discussed is potentially adding a third into our relationship. Um, it's something that we thought would be very fun and sexy. However, it was always discussed in kind of a conceptual way. We uh, were working parents and we have kids that are under five. And so um, we always thought that the effort that it would take to eventually find one uh, would be just a lot of work. And it would, probably wouldn't be as uh, exhilarating as it would be um, you know, for the work. So, um, however, we recently kind of branched out and started following some people on Snapchat and have had good experiences, uh, you know, seeing people on there and sharing ourselves and getting some validation that way. Um, It's definitely contributed and helped us feel a lot sexier. Um, However, we recently found that one of the people that's on Snapchat uh, is in our area, and uh, he's really sexy, and we are both are chatting with him and sending him stuff back and forth, and uh, he's really anxious to um, actually meet us Uh, We never thought that we would find someone so quickly or or in this way. It kind of just landed in our laps. He really wants us to fuck him, and we really want to fuck him. But the one thing that we don't want to do is fuck up our marriage. So we've explained the fact that we want to do a little bit of research to avoid any pitfalls um, so that we don't end up hurting him or or hurting our relationship. So I was wondering, Dan, this is where you come in. Um, I know that you've recommended some literature, but do you have a quick and dirty guide on how to add a third to a relationship? You know, is there like a YouTube guide or a checklist somewhere? That would be lovely. Um, And in addition, do you have any uh, recommendations for parents that are doing this other than the usual hoops that you have to jump through to have uninterrupted sex with your spouse?
2: Slow your roll there, horny dad. You're asking me about adding a third when all that's on the table here or the mattress here, all that's on offer is a three-way. You haven't even met this guy yet. You're not adding a third to your relationship. You and your husband are going to go have a sexual adventure together. And you're going to do it in such a way that's responsible and that protects your kids. You're going to do it in a hotel. You're going to do it when your kid is off at Grandma and grandpa's house, and you're going to do your best to vet this person in advance, particularly if you're going to bring them into your home. Because the last thing you want is to bring somebody into your home who then turns up at your home a couple of days later, banging on the front door. So continue to chat with this guy on Snapchat, find out what he's interested in, and be really clear about what's on offer here. You're a couple, you have kids under five, you're not emotionally or sexually going to be available to him like a single person would without kids or like a couple without kids might be if you guys are indeed interested in adding as I've always liked to call them a very special guest star to your relationship. You know, it is possible for gay people, even gay parents to have a lot of one-off sex with randos, have a lot of anonymous sex grinder works for us too. Um, I've always felt it's better to have sex with somebody that you've gotten to know and trust to have that regular Very special guest star to have that regular third to really make an investment in someone. And that's a relationship. And it is possible to have those sorts of relationships. It is possible even as parents to have those sorts of relationships. And it's not just gay parents who have those sorts of relationships. There are a lot of straight parents out there who may appear to be monogamous. They may be socially monogamous but not sexually monogamous. And they may have a very special guest star of their own who makes regular appearances between their legs. But here's the thing, you know that you're sane, you know that your husband's sane, you know that your kids are safe with you. If you're going to bring somebody else into your relationship, if indeed the long-term goal here is to add a third, you're adding a third quasi-parental figure into the lives of your children. You're introducing a third quasi-parental figure into the lives of your children and you're going to want to really make damn sure that this is someone that your kids will be safe around, will be respected by, and who will respect your role as parents in this child's life and really their secondary role in your family. They can come into your family, become a part of your family, but the core is still going to be the two of you, the legal parents who are responsible for the safety and well-being of these children. And the children will always be the top priority. Make that clear. There may be some guys out there who that's exactly what they want. They don't want kids of their own, but they'd like to be kid adjacent. They don't want to be someone's primary partner. They want their freedom and their downtime, but they want to feel like they're a part of some larger, loosely knit queer family. And you can give that to someone, but you have to make sure that the person that you're giving that to, that's what they want. That they don't want more than that. They don't want more than you can Give them because that won't be a recipe for adding a third success backing way the hell up though. You're not at the adding a third stage of this conversation with this person on Snapchat that you have never actually met in person. Have that three way first before you start talking about adding a third. See how that goes. sounds like you guys have never had sex together with anyone else. It sounds like you guys have been monogamous for the last 10 years Who knows how you'll react to seeing your husband with another man or how your husband will react to seeing you with another man. It may be that the reality of having sex together with another person doesn't match the fantasy. The reality may not be the turn on that the fantasy is. And you may find that this isn't for you. That sometimes does happen. So right now you need to keep your options open right now. You need to chill the fuck out. About this, Right now, you need to find that weekend when your parents or your husband's parents, when their grandparents can come to town so you guys can book a hotel room and fuck the shit out of this guy from Snapchat and then see where that relationship goes.
0: Hey, Dan, Nancy, and friends. I'm a 29-year-old flexible cis lady who is in a beautiful non-monogamous relationship. In fact, it's so beautiful. We're currently planning our wedding and things are super wonderful with my life partner. My question for you is actually in regards to my side piece. I've been seeing him regularly since April. He's hot, super into me, and has been a great fantasy. However, the longer you go with the person, the less NRE and the less fantasy-like and more real they become. The reality of his politics are a huge bummer, and we are pretty damn mismatched in that way. I know if I was a single person, there's no way in hell I could build a significant relationship with someone who didn't believe in systemic racism or white privilege. Can you guess? Yep, he's a white dude. But... I have my significant other relationship. I have my person who's part of my family and I'm part of theirs. And the side piece isn't that. I don't need to introduce him to anyone. So I'm asking you this. Do so I keep stepping into the role play and fantasy of this dude, even though I know the reality of him. I feel 100% safe with him, which is a big deal considering men are terrible and the world's a nightmare. What do you all think?
2: Congratulations on your upcoming wedding. First.
0: oh thank you so much thank that's,
2: you that's huge and major now about your side piece
0: yes
2: not a proud boy right
0: proud in
2: what sense well th- that proud boy gang of white supremacist violent douchebags he's not
0: oh god that, no that no, kind no, no, of no. racist that was how it started i would say get the fuck away from me right. but he, no he
2: didn't vote for donald trump like
0: no, he actually, he's one of those people that didn't vote at all. So, you know, that's like a whole conversation uh, in and of itself.
2: People who didn't vote at all voted for Donald Trump by default. Anyway. Right, exactly. There are a lot of white people out there who, until they had conversations with others, including often other white people, because conversations with people of color they would react really defensively to, w- w- didn't couldn't see or perceive or acknowledge systemic racism or white privilege, right? Right. So. I don't think that he's irredeemable. And, you know, the, I got a call or a letter f- some time ago from a woman who thought that she should keep fucking this guy who's a Nazi in, hope that, in oh, hopes God, that she no. could fuck some sense into him. And I told her, he's probably trying to fuck the Nazi into you and you shouldn't fuck Nazis. <laughs> you should punch Nazis, not fuck <laughs> Nazis. But this is a different case. This is, you know, a white person who's been soaking in white privilege his entire life. It's the air he breathes. It's the water he swims in. He doesn't even know it's there. Like the fish, it's like mm-hmm. water, what's water, right? <laughs> and it right. takes interacting with other people who are like, dude, this shit is water. This sh- this shit is wet. You are was soaking in it, as am I, right? And, and, and those right. conversations are important. And often to have those conversations with people that you have some other form of intimacy, that you have some connection that you would like to maintain and sustain, mm-hmm. that can open your mind, a little bit that can be a really effective approach because he would dismiss some stranger on the street wanting to have a conversation with him about white privilege he could dismiss a, a relative, he could turn off the TV if there was a conversation on some television program about white privilege, but if he wants to keep putting his dick in you, it may be a conversation that he can't avoid and and then we'll have.
0: Yeah, I think we've avoided it for a really long time. And finally, I was like, listen, the world is literally on fire. I'm a Californian born and raised. It's literally on fire. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can't not talk about it. And I'm someone who's been really, really affected by like in different communities that have recently been affected in the news. I am part of those communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we can't not talk about this shit because if you want to be intimate with me, that's intimately what's on my mind.
2: You have leverage. If You want to
0: like be around me. I have to be able to talk about
2: it. You have leverage. You know, I talk all the time about the campsite rule, leaving someone in better shape than you found them. Yeah. And often, you know, that's in reference to relationships where there are large age gaps or experience gaps that the older and or more experienced partner should, you know, make a good effort to leave the younger and or less experienced partner in better shape. And you found them. And that can mean talking somebody out of some odious political belief. I don't think you can fuck the Nazism out of someone, but you can certainly open someone's eyes to the importance of organized labor, to the existence of White privilege and how we as white people, and I'm assuming that he's a white person, you're a white person, and I'm a white person, we have all benefited from white privilege even if we couldn't always perceive it and reacted defensively because we don't want to have to admit to ourselves that what we achieved wasn't all by ourselves, all on our own nobody handed anything to me. You know what I mean? That kind of reaction a lot of white people have when you try to talk to them about white privilege.
0: Yeah. Especially folks when those like classes that grew up in poverty or in other really or abusive situations, there's kind of this like, but look at all the shit I went through. And like, yes, you went through it, but also there's a bunch of other shit that you didn't have to
2: go through. Exactly. And I think that's the kind of conversation you can have with somebody that you're dating. I think that's the kind of conversation you can have with somebody who's a fuck buddy. And I don't think you're enabling those odious beliefs or, or, or those errors of judgment or that misperception or, or pre-perception. Because okay. most white people have this moment where they suddenly, you know, they can see it. I mean, most white people right. who acknowledge systemic racism and white privilege didn't always. And someone had to have a conversation with them. Someone that they were, whose opinion mattered to them. Not someone they could dismiss right. and walk away from. And you can be that person.
0: Is there a point where, you know, in these conversations, like, is there a point where, like, it doesn't feel like the conversation is doing anything? And so you decide, like, okay, this isn't useful. I don't like having these conversations anymore. We can't fuck.
2: Yep. Or, you yep, know, that as can the definitely
0: privileged happen. You, person, like, I need to continue to step into these conversations, well, which, can, of course, I always want to do.
2: You can continue to have the conversation so long as you feel like, at some point, the conversation will benefit him you, right. the world right i, I imagine right. that if you talk and talk and talk about this and he can never see it that your attraction to him will wane
0: oh yeah it's already happening because
2: <laughs>
8: it's dense and,
2: and, and unreachable and right. you, know, you don't want to I don't think you want to walk away from someone prematurely. You just don't also don't want to enable. And if part of the reason you're still fucking them is because you like them and think they're a good person and could be and should be a better person. And yeah, they're not getting better.
1: Right.
2: At a certain okay. point, there has to be a consequence for not getting better. And that consequence That's can be a good point. Look, I can't keep fucking you because this is something that means a lot to me and I'm offended And, you know, we've had this conversation. We've gone round and round and round. And, yeah, you'll open your legs for me, but you're not opening your mind or your heart. Right. And that's deeply unattractive. And I'm out.
0: That's a very good way to put that. Good luck. Very true.
2: Get out there and do the Lord's work. Fuck some sense (laughs) into that boy.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. You're
2: welcome. Thanks for calling.
9: Hey, Dan and Nancy and everyone. I recently split up with a partner of two years uh about six or eight months ago. And it was probably for the best, you know, um, you know, we're both in different places in life and the parting wasn't super smooth and we've kind of tried to talk back and forth, but um, it always ends pretty negatively. She, you know, still has a lot of anger and, and I understand that. And I guess I'm just calling cause I, I know you're going to say, you know, closure is something that you give yourself, but I find myself, like going back to that sadness or like kind of missing this person and, and really genuinely like wishing the best for all of them. Um, but, you know, it's, I wonder if like the sadness is sort of like a loop that you get into where, you know, I don't necessarily think the the relationship, you know, should start again or, or pick it back up, but I still kind of carry around a lot of sadness with it. And I guess the question is kind of how do you not give yourself the closure, but like if you have any advice on not like more or less getting, like addicted to the sadness, like, you know, any given night where I'm driving home, I kind of go back to like, oh, man, I was just sad to have that person no longer in your life. And it's just, you know, I wonder if there's some more like a, p- a pattern to it. And, you know, helping to get through that. And this is just something common with breakups, you know, it's only you know been about six months, but still think about it quite a bit. And just like your advice.
2: The general rule of thumb is that you get 1 month to wallow in sadness for each year that you were together. So if you're together 10 years and you break up with someone, you get a 10 months, which we will round up to a year to just be despondent and sad and reeling from the breakup, particularly if you were not the one who initiated the breakup. This was a 2 year relationship, you initiated the breakup, and 6 to 8 months later you are still wallowing in sadness. Yeah, no, not get the fuck off. It would help if you stopped talking to her. You ended the relationship. She didn't want the relationship to end. You keep reconnecting because you wish her the best. Wish her the best from afar. Wish her the best with your mouth shut. Wish her the best without texting or emailing or calling. Wish her the best. Get the fuck on with your life. Date someone else. Go have a new relationship. You say it with circumstance that, that... pulled you apart. You're in different places, different stages of life. Who knows? Maybe in five or ten years, you two will wind up in the same place and be in the same place in your life at that time and you'll be able to pick back up. But you can't count on that. So you need to move the fuck on and stop wallowing. And that can be a decision you make when you're driving home and you're missing her and feeling sad. Just say, yeah, no, I'm not going to let myself go there. And put on some music or watch some pornography or go fuck somebody else and put some emotional, psychological, sexual, geographical, chronological distance between you and her. Between where you are now and this relationship then that again, you end it. But you know what? There's always going to be people in your romantic history when you look back that you think that could have been an LTR. That could have been something. But the something I've got now is good and I'll take it versus the possibility or the chance that I walked away from 25 years ago. There's always that road you didn't take, regret, and that's a fine thing. And it's fine to have those nuanced, ambiguous, conflicted and contradictory feelings about your romantic and sexual history, but you don't want to wallow. You want to acknowledge, you want to feel the fuck out of your feelings, but then you want to make choices and decisions and move the fuck on. And moving the fuck on emotionally, closure, is a thing that you do for yourself. And in the moment, when you find yourself spinning out or descending into sadness and regret about a relationship that is no more, you can decide to think about something else, distract yourself with something else or with someone else.
0: Hello, Uh, we're calling from Toronto, Canada. The first real doll brothel is set to open in uh, Toronto this month, or was set to open. It's called Aura Dolls. The opening has been postponed due to a negative backlash. People have been arguing that the brothel um, perpetuates violence against women. It also perpetuates racist stereotypes and does not represent real women's bodies. But we're talking here and we're just wondering, uh, on the other hand, could this service be beneficial for people who can't find a partner for whatever reason, be it physical, mental, emotional, or because they have some kind of unacceptable or taboo kink? Could it actually prevent violence against women? As I'm sure you know, we had the incel van attack here, so we're just wondering if it could maybe prevent something violent of this nature in the future, if someone had an outlet.
2: Joining us by phone to kick this one around, Dr. James Cantor, director of the Toronto Sexuality Center. Listeners can follow Dr. Cantor on Twitter at PhD. Hey, Dr. Cantor, how are you?
10: I'm good, thanks. How are you?
2: Good. Uh, So you're based in Toronto. That's where the Toronto Sexuality Center is, coincidentally enough. Did the real doll brothel wind up opening in Toronto?
10: No. Uh, As a matter of fact, I'm not... uh, Last I heard, it was canceled rather than just delayed. But this kind of thing, I wouldn't be surprised if there were things going on in courts in the background and it'll be revisited in the future.
2: And the argument against opening a real doll brothel, and there are lots of impassioned arguments on Twitter and social media and elsewhere is, of course, that providing mostly men with female robot doll, real dolls, sex dolls, it is somehow uh, going to perpetuate or normalize violence against women. Seeing You know, providing men with these women-like objects is going to result in men seeing all women as objects and not human beings. Is that a legitimate concern?
10: Uh the science of it really doesn't give any support for that kind of an idea. Uh, a lot of those fears, I mean, are legitimate fears. I mean, people do, you know, wonder about the well-being of uh, women or children if we're talking about, you know, sex bots or dolls that uh, that look like kids. But a lot of the fear is based on a misconception on how male sexual interests develop, a lot of it, A lot of people think that you know, if you have orgasms in the presence of a doll, you know, like in a very Skinnerian kind of way, that you will develop a sexual orientation or interest in that thing. That somehow we can reinforce in somebody a sexual interest, but that's just not true. You know, for men especially, you know, people just figure out what they're into and it doesn't matter what you masturbate to or avoid masturbating to that's what you're into so there really is no worry to think that you know somebody masturbating with a doll or any other kind of situation that you you can use a doll in that that would really change the person's sexual orientation sexual interest pattern or or their willingness to break the law or hurt somebody else
2: so you can't just throw a real doll or you know a sex bot at someone who doesn't see women as objects and they will then turn around and begin to see women as objects.
10: Uh, Correct. It's, uh, you know, as we, as society has very validly, you know, uh, recognized women being over objectified. We're not talking about objectifying women. We're talking about objectifying objects. These are sex toys, you know, like any other inflatable doll. You know, these are just a little bit more realistic. But the basic idea is exactly the same. Some people get a feeling of uh, ickiness when the thing starts, you know, being able to move or respond a bit. But the basic idea is the same. This is an object. We're not objectifying a person.
2: Now, one of the caller's uh, concerns or, or one of the questions she raises is whether providing someone with an outlet, providing somebody who has non-normative sexual desires with an outlet. And this is where we start tiptoeing up to uh, the sex bot child robot sex dolls for pedophiles. Does, is there any evidence out there in the research that shows that providing someone whose sexual interests or fantasies cannot, for ethical reasons, ever be realized, providing them with an outlet makes them less likely to offend, less likely to rape or sexually assault someone?
10: there when we get right down to it there really is no good research uh, uh well there's no research on it uh, at all it's not like we can randomly assign people to these groups compare the two groups and see see what kind of it, uh, what uh if there's any kind of a difference it, it's just not realistic to run that kind of an experiment uh, so we're really just kind of going on basic principles and what our prediction uh, predictions should be. So as I, you know, very carefully point out, there's no evidence that, you know, letting people use sex dolls to express whatever interest is going to be a danger. There's also no ev- uh, no evidence in the other direction. You know, my own support for it is in a basic, you know, pro-sexual, pro-sexual you know, expression, do what you want until there's evidence of, uh, of harm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm, I'm just kind of, uh, for me, the onus of evidence goes on the people who to say that we need to ban it because it's harmful? Okay, show me the evidence that it's harmful, and, and we'll go there. But until then, no. This still, for me, goes on the sex, uh, sexual free, uh, uh, freedom and sexual expression list.
2: Yeah, for me, that's kind of where I land too. Like, you know, you're duct taping a fleshlight to a toaster and playing a tape of somebody talking. Um, the more realistic uh, uh, sex dolls get, and no one, there hasn't been a lot of protests about blow up dolls or even real dolls. Um, which were sex toys that came along about 15 years ago, which are articulated silicone, life-size, much more realistic than a blow-up doll, sex dolls that come in the male and female iterations. Of course, the the ones that uh, look like women are a lot more popular, and a lot more of those units have been moved. But there's something that's, I think, freaking people out about the idea of kind of an AI Westworld gigolo jack from the, the movie AI kind of sentient, almost sex robot to, to, to which you can do anything because it's just a robot as we see in Westworld. And is this just arousing people's moral fears? Is creating a moral panic?
7: Um,
10: I think is a little bit of a slip, I think, because, uh, when we're talking about, uh, collecting several of these things into, you know, one place and calling it a brothel, all of a sudden now there's a neighborhood that's being affected and they're wondering about the people who are coming and going from this place so it's not exactly the same situation that where if somebody uh, uh, typically with you know a large disposable income can buy one of these customized dolls and it never leaves uh, it never leaves his house so I think because these two, yeah, we're talking about these two industries now crossing. So people who otherwise were willing to tolerate it, because after all, it is just somebody in somebody's house. Now the idea that there's a brothel next door or near a school or in the neighborhood, you know, so it, it's now getting collections of neighborhoods of people to work together instead of just this anonymous theoretical person, and it could be anybody.
2: The caller raises the incel attack, cites the incel attack in Toronto where someone who identifies with the involuntary celibate community, which is this black misogynistic mold that grows on the internet, uh, got in a van and mowed down, ran down um, scores of people, killed, I believe, 11 women uh, in his attack. There have been other quote-unquote incel attacks in in the United States. Is there an argument to be made for maybe somebody who might be tacking toward identifying as an incel if there was some sort of culturally approved intervention early on until they curdled into this kind of hatred and were in a position to snap and, and become violent if they had some sexual outlet, if they had access to sex workers or sex dolls. And I, you know, I I say this and I get in trouble sometimes with my friends who are sex workers. I don't want to throw a sex worker in front of a violent psychopath to save good women. I'm talking about a massive cultural shift where there aren't these people who are sexually deprived who are then told paying for it or or buying it, whether you're talking about a, a human sex worker or access to a sex doll in a brothel, um, means you're a monster or a loser. And I think those cultural messages result in some people not accessing the sex they could have and becoming angrier and angrier at being deprived. So I, I guess this is a long way of me getting to, to the caller's question. Is this something that could have prevented the incel attack.
10: I would hesitate to put a one-to-one prediction that if this guy had a better way to masturbate, that he would have, you know, been less violent. Uh, He and uh, the other people who end up in this, you know, have a series of mental health problems one of which is sexual or at least the one that they like to express when the cameras are on them is a sexual one because you know that that's just part of their deluded way of looking at themselves and the world but i can easily imagine that if somebody is uh, uh, has a, a genuine i'll call it a, a, a socially related mental health disorder or a bona fide social uh, uh, disorder that part of the treatment to help this person can involve, you know, superior masturbatory products together with, you know, ba- more basic training on social skills. Now, uh, again, I don't want to necessarily associate these people uh, uh, with somebody on the Asperger's or, or autism uh, spectrum, but there is a range of social skills and it goes from people who are highly social skilled, you know, the regular everyday people and people who have, you know, a, a genuine deficit, you know, emerging from their brain structure that they do not not read social signals as easily as other people do, and they develop almost a, a, like a social dyslexia. Now, if we could help those people integrate into society better in a healthy way, then each of these problems will uh, 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 will go away. So uh, although I think both are in the mix, I don't think the the Network of what goes with what is going to be a very simple of uh, better masturbation or more orgasms or opportunity or more paid opportunities will lead to a decrease in violence. I think it really takes a takes a bet. Uh, we need to take an individual person, what their particular social deficits are, and then come up with a package that would you know be- best help whatever combination of skills he has versus needs to develop.
2: Yeah, it's about changing the assembly line. You can't stand at the end of the assembly line that's kicking out damaged incels and repair them, that there are interventions that have to happen earlier before they end up on that incel assembly line.
10: Exactly, and I don't want to treat them all as the same, although they tend to cluster together, you know, would in a... Uh in a mutual understanding of their being social, uh, social outcasts, and then they can spin each other into crazier and crazier behavior. But the ones who are genuinely antisocial, the ones who are genuinely anti- uh, psychopathic and cannot understand that another person is another person, you know, that we have to deal with in a very, very different way from a person who just kind of wants to be liked and has absolutely none of the tools in order to, in order to develop good social relationships.
2: So as a scientist, what's your position? Allow some sex brothels to open and start gathering data and see if there's harm? That seems to be something that others don't want to risk, that the potential for harm, uh, the, the hypothetical harm is something that we should want to avoid. And we should err on the side of caution. But you take the opposite position.
10: Um, well, my basic opinion isn't really a scientific one. I, it's now the scientist in me naturally is oh, if anybody act, wants to track one of these things or needs a criminologist to follow in the neighborhood to see if there is any meaningful change, you know, fine, I, I'm, I'm all for helping. Uh, but the basic decision, do we ban something until there's evidence of harm? Well, that's not a scientific question, but it's against my, you know, basic, you know, free speech and freedom of scientific inquiry to be able to uh, to say that we should uh, uh, ban it. Which is also not to say that there can't be, you know, reasonable compromises with uh, with neighborhoods for uh, appropriate distances from uh, uh, from schools, or you know, regulated the way we would regulate uh, uh, the location of uh, 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 liquor stores or, uh, or or sex toy shops. You know, there, there can be reasonable accommodations for for, uh, for neighborhoods, but outright banning, to me, takes a threshold that, that we just don't have the evidence for.
2: One last question, and I'm almost afraid to ask it because I don't want to come across like some sort of men's rights activist whining about misandry when it's misogyny that is the the much larger cultural problem um, and slut-shaming and violence against women. These are the big issues and and do the most damage. But I've noticed some really weird discomfort with male masturbatory aids uh, that seems to be... That to me smacks of a double standard. Like, we all like love the Hitachi magic wand, and we have Sex in the City episodes that are 15 or 20 years old now about the rabbit, uh, ear, you know, rotating vibrator. Um, and we're all cool with dildos and strap ons and pegging. And then, you know, along come fleshlights or these, or a sex doll, something a man masturbates into. And people kind of recoil from that in a way that seems to me a little unfair or, or stigmatizing about male sexuality. And I, and I hate to, to even like go there because I start to sound like a hashtag not all men MRA guy. And I'm not that guy. But the, 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 the freak out that I've seen people who are down with strap-ons, down with Hitachi magic wands, down with vibrators, have when they are, are confronted with or have to look at or think about or talk about a fleshlight seems strange to me. And, that, I, and what are these dolls, but something a dude is going to jack off into as he might into a flashlight?
10: It, I, don't have, I don't know if there is an easy answer. At least I don't have an, uh, an easy answer. Uh, but in the past, I don't know, decade, a bunch of things have changed. Like there's a, uh, now an enormous uh, anti-fap group altogether, and they're just against masturbation, Period. And they, you know, via the Internet largely, have become absolutely enormous. So they oppose whatever new thing comes along. So I think we just hear anti-sex toy stuff along with their general anti-masturbation message. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, uh, gender uh, gender discussions and basic uh, gender differences and sex differences has become you know more and more extreme on both ends, and so again we're just hearing more arguments and just whatever has come along is going to be controversial because it's the only thing to present itself. in now you know an, an unrealistically hyper polarized. Mm-hmm. Uh, environment. So I think a bunch of people are coming in with, with different arguments, but I don't think any of them are particularly new. People just have, you know, more megabytes by which to scream louder than they did before.
2: Dr. James Cantor, director of the Toronto Sexuality Center, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. It's always fascinating to chat with you.
10: My pleasure.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a 33 year old cisgendered, mostly heterosexual female. <laughs> in a little blue dot in a big red area in Texas. Um, My question is concerning um, my boyfriend and I of almost three and a half years. We have a great sex life and a great relationship. And recently he's expressed to me that he really wants me to um, swallow his cum either um, after giving him, well, yeah, after giving him head. um, Another request that he has is, that um, maybe we're having sex or having other play other than um, me giving him a blowjob and then we return to the blowjob and that's how he finishes. So even if it's like PIV to like have me go down on him just before he's about to come and finish him off that way. And a big request is that I swallow the cum which I've only done a few times in my life and I know I want to be really adventurous and I am all about being GGG but for some reason having cum in my mouth and swallowing it, um, it's really hard for me. I I have a long history of really severe IBS. And every time I've swallowed cum, um, I immediately, uh, am triggered to vomit and I end up running to the bathroom and vomiting. And I'm embarrassed because I want to be like awesome. But for some reason, I, I I can't seem to overcome this. And I really want to, um, be able to do this for him because I know that it would be really hot and he'd really enjoy it. And I love him and I want to make him feel good. So help me out. Uh, How do I get better at swallowing (laughs) cum? Okay, thanks.
2: There are people out there who have terrible allergic reactions to semen. Often it's partner-specific. One person's semen won't irritate them at all. Another person's semen will make them nauseous, will give them almost instant onset diarrhea, stomach aches, even in some cases vomiting. Vomiting, however, isn't related to IBS. It's not a symptom of IBS. Vomiting isn't. And so I don't know how that's related. But if you just generally have gut issues and you are quick to become nauseous and you also have IBS, this may be a hard limit for you if you're not willing to throw up every time your boyfriend ejaculates in your mouth and you have to swallow his cum to please him. This may not be something that you're physically capable of Doing for him. So, the price of admission to be with you, if indeed he wants to be with you, is having to forego this specific act. Now, I've always felt that the blowjob is over after you've come, and the person who gave the blowjob is free to dispose of the semen in any way that they choose. Emission accomplished. They don't have to continue to perform the blowjob. They can let it run out of the sides of their mouth and down the dick. They can spit it out. They can swallow it. They can put it in a jar and spread it on toast. It's theirs. They earned it. It's their come to dispose of. Now, I know that there are some people out there who are really erotically invested in their powerful magic semen being ingested by their partner and feeling connected to their partner or served by their partner in that way. And that is, of course, legitimate. But again, it is extra credit. It is the icing on the blowjob cake. And you, in particular, it's not just about you don't like the taste. It's not just you feel odd doing it or weird doing it or there's something that feels degrading about doing it and therefore you don't want to do it. It literally makes you sick. And therefore, you get a pass. You do not have to do this. All that said, if his pleasure means this much to you, And you want to take one for the team every once in a very great while. I wouldn't knock the dick out of your mouth if you were willing to swallow a load and immediately after go throw it up. But that would be your choice. And that would be a gift you were giving him, not something that he has any right to expect.
9: Hi, Dan. I'm a straight white cis male in California. And I recently discovered the very dangerous, very toxic world of incels. And they are disgusting, but also strangely, strangely fascinating. And I kind of want to help these people because they're so knee deep in their own neuroses that I feel like someone needs to reach out to them. So I I wanted your advice. I was thinking of doing a podcast directly to incels to say how they could stop being incels. Uh would love to hear your thoughts.
2: There's a lot of talk out there about what incels are saying to each other. And as I like to call it, the black mold of misogyny that grows all over the internet, which seems to be weaponized in a particularly destructive way in incel chat rooms. I would support, and I think it's a good idea to create a little incel-specific counter-programming, something that can help people tiptoe out of those communities, can open their eyes, give them Some insight, maybe some tips on how to fix their issues and their problems in a constructive way instead of just lashing out in anger or spinning other people up constantly until one of them snaps and does something violent. Yeah, start that podcast. Talk to those people. Talk them off the ledge that they refuse to come off of. Go for it. That would be God's work.
8: Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old trans femme listener from the south and I'm calling in regards to questions about you know using hookup apps and such. I recently started exploring and understanding my gender and I've narrowed it down to being very femme. If I'm presenting, really interested in exploring that. So in my hookup apps, I've you know updated my profile to include that information. I also use the word twink in my description, which is a bit of an interesting weird word for me because I am very For the most part, I'm very, I'm skinny relatively, except around my stomach, I have a pretty large midsection and I'm working on getting my weight down. But regardless, I still think twink is the best way to describe myself. Now, obviously, the the problems I run into are guys who see my profile and contact me. And they're very much like, oh, hello, you must be a really young, skinny twink. And I have to gently tell them that that's not the case. Um, And usually what happens is they block me right away. Um, Or they're like, oh, sorry, it's not my type. And I did have one guy who legit said that, regardless of the fact that this app doesn't have a voice memo function, he was like, oh, I just like feminine boys, girly voice and all. And I was like, that's bullshit because there's no voice thing. So really you just don't like that I'm not skinny, like a skinny twink femme. And I called him out on it, and then he told me that, He wanted to know if he wanted if I wanted him to pity fuck me and I was like, Okay, we're ending this conversation. But regardless, this has really fucked over my sense of self worth and body image and I'm trying to understand how to fix that. And part of me is wondering, at this point, should I even keep these dating apps up? I don't have a lot of sexual contact at all because I'm very cautious. But I really it's an urge that I have and every so often I want to fill it. But at the same time, is being fat-shamed and being consistently, you know, having my self-esteem chipped away at because so many guys have this very stereotypical image of femininity in their heads, which I don't apply to. Is that even worth it to have all of that for a sexual experience I have, like maybe once every few months or so. I'm just trying to figure out what would be the smartest, healthiest way to do it as opposed to just continually subjecting myself to this.
2: The smart way to do this, the, the way to spare yourself the kind of rejection you face from guys who aren't attracted to your particular body type is to avoid accidentally misidentifying yourself. You say that you're trans femme and I assume that means you're somewhere on the trans spectrum that perhaps you have identified or still identify as a gay man or you're seeking male sex partners and yet you are femme uh, and, and wish to present more as femme. Um, but to describe yourself as a twink – A twink is understood to be slender and hairless and young. And you are young and perhaps you're hairless, but you aren't slender. So saying that you're a twink misrepresents you, misrepresents your body type. Even if you identify as a twink, people are going to make assumptions when they see that word about your physical body. And then when they learn that your body doesn't really align with the stereotype of what a twink is they're going to pull away from you and you're going to be pained by that rejection and feel fat shamed by that rejection. But let's say, you know, some twink described himself as a bear in his ads. And then he had to tell guys that actually he's not on the larger side. He's not muscular. He's not hairy guys who came to him, guys who responded to his ad because they're attracted to bears are going to reject him because he isn't what they expected when he described himself as a bear and their expectation was entirely reasonable. The expectations of the guys who respond to your ad when they see the word twink, that you will be slender and hairless and young, that is a reasonable expectation because that is what that word is understood to mean. Don't use that word and then you won't have to bat away as many of these guys. Put yourself out there online as the person that you are and the size that you are and then guys will respond to your ad who are legitimately attracted to you. Maybe fewer guys, conventionally attractive people, do better in the dating world. It's just a sad fact. But there will be guys out there who will be into you. There is not a lid for every pot, but there tends to be someone who wants to get into someone's pants for everyone. Almost everyone is someone's particular jam, as they say. So be more honest about who you are. Really put yourself out there. Make sure your pictures are accurate and representative and current then you won't have to waste your time on guys who are going to reject you. You won't end up feeling fat shamed because you will pull guys and attract guys who are into your body as it is now and you won't have to waste your time anymore on guys who responded to your ad expecting a twink only to find out that you aren't actually a twink.
11: Hi, Dan. I have a question for you about female drag queens. I'm a bisexual thirty five year old woman married to a man, so I don't feel like I'm really part of the queer community right now because I'm married to a man. Um but my little sister recently came out as a lesbian and would like to start performing as a drag queen, which is super cool. I'm all about it. But my question is she asked me if I would perform with her the first time because she's really nervous and I am not interested in dressing in drag as a man because I'm a big girl. I'm 6'2", and I'm just big, and I've always felt like it's hard for me to feel feminine. But I am kind of, my sister suggested to me maybe I could dress as a drag queen, which is something I've never heard about, and I'm worried that it would be cultural appropriation for me as a Woman to dress as a drag queen, but I do want to be supportive of my sister. I think it's cool that she's exploring her new identity, but I don't want to offend anyone.
2: So, you're worried that you, as a woman, dressing up in women's clothing will be appropriating women's clothing from the drag queens of the world who appropriated women's clothing from the women of the world. This is not a problem. Dress however you'd like. If you want to, Get dressed the fuck up. And if you want to dress the fuck up in a way that seems drag queeny, you have an absolute right to do that. Enjoy. Have fun. There's nothing wrong with that. You aren't stealing drag from the gay community or from gay men or from the drag queens of the world. Not all of whom are gay men. You're just dressing up in crazy, hyper-feminine, exaggerated women's clothing. And tearing it up with your sister on the town. Anybody who gives you grief about that is an asshole, is a gatekeeping, that word, that term, is a gatekeeping, other policing, boundary-drawing asshole who isn't in charge of your life. And you can make the choices that you wish to make. It's not like doing blackface. It's not like wearing a sombrero on Cinco de Mayo. It's not wearing an Indian chief headdress as a 19-year-old straight boy to Coachella. You're a lady putting on ladies' clothes, the kinds of ladies' clothes that a lot of men who like to put on ladies' clothes also like to put on. Perfectly legitimate use of lady clothes. Enjoy. Have fun. Don't ever think it.
12: Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm from Seattle. I'm a cis 25-year-old straight female I just had the weirdest exchange with one of my um, male gay friends and my new boyfriend. Um, I was hanging out with my friend Jack, who's the male gay friend. We were hanging out at like a bar, and then afterwards, I was going to bring him to my favorite karaoke bar that I meet my boyfriend at, who's my newest, he's a new boyfriend. We've only been together for like a few weeks. And then um, things were going well when we were at the karaoke bar. And then all of a sudden we were switching booths and my boyfriend Cody was like kind of possessive about sitting next to me. And then that kind of upset my friend Jack. And then it became like this weird thing about who could sit next to me that made me feel really uncomfortable. I'm just wondering, like, what does that mean? Like, why, why does my male gay friend not want me to sit next to my boyfriend. Like, why does he need to sit right next to me? Just made me confused. And then that became an issue throughout the night. Like he was angry that he couldn't sit next to me. And I just, I feel like it wasn't proportionate to what actually happened. Like, it makes sense that I would sit next to my boyfriend. I mean, I, I get to see where he's coming from a little bit, but I don't know. Like, what do you think? It seems a little weird.
2: I could see your gay friend overreacting or reacting if your brand new boyfriend treated him like he was a rival for your romantic affections, I've been on the receiving end of that where I've had friends who were girls, friends who were women, got a boyfriend and they thought I was a threat and it was just mystifying. I wasn't a threat. I was a girlfriend basically for all intents and purposes. And some dude reacting to me like I'm another straight dude who's trying to steal his property, his brand new girlfriend who I've no longer than he has. That's just annoying. It's mystifying. And if you're an immature kind of gay guy, maybe that would provoke you to retaliate, to to be kind of dickish back to the straight guy who's being a dick to you for literally no reason. Doesn't sound like that's what happened here. Sounds like your gay friend has some boundary issues about possessing you, and sounds like he was the one who was threatened, not your new boyfriend. So you need to have words with your gay friend and be like, "We are friends," and. We have an intimate friendship, but not a romantic or sexual friendship. And there are things a boyfriend has a right to expect when they're hanging out with me on the town that you as my friend, as my girlfriend, for all intents and purposes, don't have a right to expect. Which is, yeah, he's going to sit next to me or put his arm around me or cuddle with me while we're at the bar. That's an appropriate boyfriend thing to do, even brand new boyfriend thing to do. And so long as he's not treating me like I'm a fire hydrant that he's pissing on – to mark his territory, you shouldn't have an issue with it. Even if he was treating me like that, I would take issue with it. So you don't have to white knight your way over to me to save me from my brand new boyfriend. You need to draw some boundaries with this guy. You need to make it clear to your gay friend who your boyfriend is and how your boyfriend is different than him or other friends. Now, sometimes in gay, guy, straight, girl relationships, there is an ease, there is an intimacy, there is physical affection because it's low stakes, low consequence, and it can be very comfortable and comforting. And that may be taken from your gay friend if indeed you guys have had that kind of relationship where when you did hang out, you would sit together with your arms around each other or he would sit really close to you when you hung out. And he may be sad that that's now someone else's privilege But he'll just have to get the fuck over it. That was always on loan. It wasn't his. He didn't own it. He didn't own you. Your new boyfriend doesn't own it, doesn't own you either. But your new boyfriend gets that physical attention from you now and for the time being. And if your new boyfriend goes the fuck away, you might not want to have that kind of physical intimacy and touch and closeness with your gay friend. Because clearly he's misinterpreted what it means and what it entitles him to.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to today's episode, December 4th, specifically in response to the caller whose ex-husband was her former therapist. Caller, I I guess I wanted to emphasize I feel like Dan's response wasn't vehement enough. What your ex-husband chose to do by first expressing his returned love for you and then acting upon it was so much more than just a failure. For one thing, Your feelings of love for him are very common. It's called erotic transference, and therapists and social workers actually get trained in how to handle that experience of patients, and they also get trained in how to deal with transference from their own end. When you were his patient at 19, he had a professional responsibility to maintain boundaries, and if he felt he was unable to effectively do that as a result of his feelings, he should have referred you elsewhere and never ever acted upon those feelings. He took advantage of your vulnerability and his power as your therapist, someone you trusted and I imagine looked up to you and confided deeply in. That was his error and nothing that you should be ashamed of or feel the need to minimize. Additionally, his friends should have reported him to the licensure, like social work board within his state, and he would have lost his license immediately. Please be kind to yourself. You were young and vulnerable, and this was his fault, not yours. And I promise that there are tons of amazing, truly professional therapists out there who maintain appropriate boundaries, and it's so possible for you to find someone to help you heal from this experience in a healthy way.
14: Hi, Dan. This is a response to the guy in episode 632 who was upset that his wife was masturbating and squirting without him. I agree with everything that Dan said, but I want to go a little further here. As a woman listening to your comment, the male entitlement that is just dripping from your voice is frankly appalling. I'm like literally seething sitting here listening. You need to apologize to your wife, but moreover, you need to do some really deep soul searching here because you are making some offensive assumptions. You do not own your wife. You do not own her sexuality. And she has the absolute right to masturbate however she wants without your consent, your approval, your knowledge. The attitude that you have that your wife owes you this experience just because it's your fantasy is the same attitude that men have used throughout history to justify misogyny, violence against women, and rape culture. So yeah, like Dan said, apologize to your wife profusely, but then make a commitment to examine what makes you feel so entitled. Once you've done the work and committed to changing your attitudes and accept your apology, maybe you can come back to this.
2: And we're going to leave it there. 206 302 2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 2064. Sorry I didn't read your tweets this week, but I am on vacation. If you want us to read your tweets on an upcoming show, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Cast. Give the gift of the Savage Lovecast to folks you know who love the show, but only listen to the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast. You can gift the subscription edition, the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. To your friends and family, just go to savagelovecast.com and click on the gray box that says Gift. The Magnum is twice as much Savage Lovecast with no ads. And you can listen to me every week on Blabbermouth, the Stranger's Weekly Politics Podcast, hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. James Cantor on Twitter at phd Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week on an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.